Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you got a Bible, I want you to go with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to look in just a few moments. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to turn. We have been in this series now for the last four weeks. Uh, this is week number four where Pastor Chad in week one looked at discipleship. Week two, I examined fellowship. Last week, he did a great job of talking about our fourth anchor value called stewardship. And today, we're going to talk about the anchor value of worship, that we are a worshiping people, that we are redeemed to worship God, okay? Before we jump into the text, I want to talk for a few moments about some of the paradoxes, if I can, of the Christian faith. These, when you really begin to examine them, seem at the surface like contradictions. See, what I've learned as following Jesus is part of the burden of being a Christian is being burdened to speak to God and for God. And I want to emphasize that for a moment. That is a burden. It is a burden to try to speak for God. It is a burden to try to speak to God in prayer. Karl Barth, the great theologian, German theologian, he said, it's an impossibility. Speaking for God is an impossibility. He called it a possible impossibility to speak for God and to speak to God. Why? Because first of all, we're speaking to and about God. And we're not God. I'm not God, you're not God, and only God could know God fully, and only God can reveal God fully, and yet we as human beings in this earth and this planet are bound to speak to this God, and we are bound to speak for this God to other people. That would be impossible. But somehow, in Jesus Christ, it becomes, as Karl Barth says, a possible impossibility. We also not only just have the problem that we are not God, we also have the problem that we are sinners. We are human beings that are sinned against and are sinners. Not only are we human beings that are infinitely removed from God, separate from God, but we're sinned against by other people and we're sinning against this God. And yet on top of that, as if we're not God's not enough and as if we're not sinners and sinned against is not enough, then on top of that, thirdly, we're still learning to speak the word of God. We're still learning how to put God's word on our lips and speak. We're learning how to speak to God and how to speak about God. We're still learning how to do that. My 22-month-old right now, she's talking, and she is adorable. Harper Grace is talking, and her siblings in the car now have this game called Yellow Car, and they point to Yellow Car and yell it out before the next one. The other day, we're driving down the road. We're sitting at Kroger, the, the, uh, the uh, red light at Kroger, and she looks up from the back seat without her siblings looking up, and she says, Yatta. Yeah, yellow car. And it was like, it was amazing that she had picked up on this. She picked up on it again today. She said, we're here, you know, like when we're pulling into the church, right? I mean, she's, she, she's learning how to talk, but she's making the words work the way she wants to make them work, right? That's what we do as infants. She's learning to imitate mom, dad, brother, sister, but she still has her own way. She still has her own names, her own phrases. All of us are essentially two-year-olds learning to speak about God. And God thinks it's cute, to be honest with you. Karl Barth called the Bible God's goo-goo talk. We are bound as humans to try to speak about God, who is infinite, and we're bound as humans to try to speak to God, who is infinite. It's possible, 
impossibility, and yet we are just learning to do it. And sometimes, if we are going to speak faithfully as Christians, we have to affirm with our lips and our lives what seems like contradictions. See, one of the odd things about being a Christian is, especially in our culture, is that our culture loves simplification, right? What Pastor Jad just said, they want everything to be simple. We want it to be so very simple. We want it so clear and simple. And the reality is there is an enormous, I say probably more so than any other time, enormous pressure on ministers of the gospel to make something clear. There's an enormous pressure culturally on Christians to be able to, as representatives of the gospel, to make things very clear. And I just want to tell you that when you talk about the gospel, it's not possible. It's not possible. You say, well, Craig, it is. Like, I tell people all the time, I was in student ministry 10 years, I always told them, I want to give you a gift. One of the gifts I can give you as your student pastor is I want you to make you allergic to simplicity. When people tell you, oh, the gospel played out in the world is simple, I want you to break out in hives. Oh, oh, well, that's not true, Craig, because Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself. And he says, God is love. Yeah, that's true. But then when you begin to ask the question, what does loving your neighbor look like in this world? You have all kinds of complexity on top of the mystery of what is seemingly so simple. So yes, I'm called to love my neighbor, but what does that look like right now when my neighbor who's my boss and he's abusing my work hour time? How does loving my neighbor play out? Oh, it seems so simple what Jesus said. Like when my neighbor is leering on my children, my teenage girl, he's looking at my teenage girl in my yard. What does loving my neighbor look like? See, loving your neighbor is so simple until you start loving your neighbor. It is so much complexity around what we think and say out one side of our mouth is so easy or simple. So to do it rightly, what I'm trying to say is we have to be willing to say many things that sound contradictory. Let me give you a couple examples. Just kind of pull you in. Jesus said very clearly, the first will be last. The last will be first. And we, because we've grown up in church, we nod in pious agreement. Yeah, sounds great. But then we're like, what in the world does that mean? Jesus would say things like this. He says, if you want to find yourself, you got to lose yourself. And then again, we nod in a pious agreement. But if we're thinking about it, we realize we don't know what that really means. And see, Jesus is not only speaking this way, he's also embodies this way. He is the God, follow me, church. He is the God who is God and man at once. So sometimes, here's what we do. Our speech betrays us. I've done it before. You've probably done it. We say God as a, a Jesus as a human or God as a human, Jesus sleeps. And then we say God as or Jesus as God, then he calms the storm. But that's not quite right. According to the incarnation, according to scripture, as the one who is both God and man, he sleeps. As the one who is both God and man, he calms the storm. As the one who is both God and man, he creates Mary. As the one who is both God and man, he is born unto Mary's womb. You have to say it all, all at the same time in order to be faithful as a Christian, and that's hard. You have to say all of it at one time. And you can't say any less than that or you become unfaithful to Scripture. This is why in Revelation, John's there on the island of Patmos. And what happens? The prophet, the prophet hears this as a lion of the tribe of Judah behind him. And he turns around and he sees a lamb. Lamb with scars. How can you be a lion and a lamb? How can you be the predator and be the prey? Because we're talking about Jesus here. And we have to affirm all of it at one time. I learned this in the Pentecostal church. 
I'm gonna just tell you my experience in the Spirit-filled church. Many of you don't have this faith tradition, but let me just, for, for some of you who do, you know where I'm going with this. Most of the services, we called them services we had, had a call at the end of it to, to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are very few services that I've ever been into in the Pentecostal church where there was not an opportunity for people to come forward to the altar and seek the Spirit baptizer, Jesus, to baptize them in the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in a tongue, a foreign language, a, a, a heavenly language. And you would come forward and you would seek for it and people would gather around you. You know where I'm going with this. In Pentecostal services, you don't pray by yourself. There's this thing as solo praying. And so you got down to the altar and people are crowding in on you. They're spitting on you. They're sweating on you. They're getting as tight as they can on you. There's a whole circle around you. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that seeking, somebody gets real close to one ear and they're saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And in the other ear, somebody's saying, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. And you have no idea what in the world's going on. And what I've learned is actually Christian speech is like that. We simultaneously have to say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, and let go, let go, let go, because we're talking about a God who is infinite, and we're talking about God's work on the earth, which is mysterious, and we're doing that as two-year-olds two or 22 months olds that really don't know how to speak yet. That's really what Christian speech is, and this is what we signed up to do as preachers. Spend our lives trying to say all of it at once. All of it. And we have to resist anything that simplifies that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my hero in the faith, right before he was hung for his faith, and one of the works and books he didn't finish, he talks about how Christianity in the modern world is trying to, trying to get split apart, split apart by people who want simplicity. So he says, some forms of Christianity, they only want to talk about Jesus, the teacher. And the emphasis falls on Jesus as the wise teacher. He always speaks. He's the wise man. He's the one who taught a better way. And of course, he is the teacher. But he says, when that happens, whenever the emphasis is only as Jesus as the teacher, what we end up with in Christianity is a form of compromise with the world where we let the world remain the way the world is. And Jesus just gives us good advice of how to survive our years on earth. He says, you got other people? They won't only talk about the cross of Jesus. And they have no regard for the one who said, love your enemies. They have no regard for the one who says that if you lust in your eyes that you're committing adultery. They just want to talk about the one who died for our sins. They have no regard that he said, blessed are the meek. That, that he, he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. They don't live the Sermon on the Mount. They just, and this is what we see in our nation. Just follow me. They just want to what? They just want to talk about what Jesus did at one point for them. He says that creates a radical Christianity that's only concerned about being against the world and no interest in learning how to live in the world. They're just, they're just dividing the life of Christ to his cross. And then he says there's care, those are part of Christianity that don't care about him as the teacher and don't care about him as the cross. They care only about Jesus and his resurrection. So these people are enthusiastic. They believe they're so united to God that they have no troubles in the world. I believe we know a few of these. They only want to focus on the resurrection. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, with authority, we must resist any form of Christianity that divides the life of Jesus. We have to say all of his life, all at one time. All of it. It seems like it's coming out of all sides of our mouth. We must affirm that Jesus is God, become fully human, lived a sinless life, died a debt that we deserve, raised to the life on the third day and ascended. And we have to say all of that at once. I never forget a good pastor friend of mine. He said, I had a dramatic experience at a church one time I was preaching. A woman came up to me and she says, I know what you're saying, preacher. She said, but let me tell you how I experienced. I experienced it like this. She said, my best friend had several children early on in life, 
early on in life. They went by later on in life. She said this, this friend of hers, this girlfriend of hers had a child later on in life. And this child very late in life, her oldest child is there with her mom when the new child is about to be born and they get word that her oldest child has cancer. And he's got stage four cancer as the oldest child when mom is about to have new child. And she, she said to this pastor, she said, my friend, you know what she did? She told me that she was in the hospital one day as, he was, as she was holding her oldest son in the hospital bed with her. The oldest son put his head on his mama's belly and he started crying and tears started flowing because he said, mom, I can feel the baby kicking my face. Think about that. Here is a moment with new life about to come out of a lady and she's holding in her arms her first child who is dying. That is Christianity. That's it. The contradiction you feel in that hospital room is what it's like to be a Christian. You feel teeming with hope and new life and yet around you everything is passing away. This is what we're called to live faithfully. The contradiction. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep at the exact same time. So what we're tempted to be, we are as their church, we're tempted to be a church only holding on to the dying mama and only about the baby in the womb, but not both of them. We want to weep with those who weep and we don't care about doing anything else or rejoicing with those who rejoice. Or we have the temptation to rejoice with only those who rejoice. So on this side, we only sing songs in the church about victory. We only sing songs about miracles. We only sing songs about answered prayer, but we never talk about the prayer or prayers that don't get answered. And on the other extreme, we talk about darkness and we talk about suffering. In order to be faithful, we gotta talk about all of it at one time. We have to be a church in testimony where people stand up before the community and they say, you know what? God broke through in my life. And at the same time, we give the mic to somebody who says, I'm waiting for God to come through in this way. Both. And if our testimony songs and sermons only hit one note, they become propaganda. And we see it in Christian television. In a community that can only talk about the joy of the Lord, you're no longer talking about the joy of the Lord. It's propaganda for your best life now. And if you only talk about despair and suffering, if your church, that's all you talk about, then it's no longer Jesus you're talking about. You're talking about despair and despondency before a broken world. That's not Christianity either. In a faithful church, we talk about joy and sorrow. We talk about life and death. We talk about miracles and we talk about waiting on the Lord. And that's difficult to do. And today's anchor value is the exact same as that contradiction. We worship when things are not right and in order. We worship when things are so seemingly contradictory in my life. Worship. Our response ability. Go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Let me tell you as you're turning there about a man named Frank Moore. Frank Moore Jr. was an African-American man who worked and served at a ministry in Gainesville, Georgia called Good News at Noon. I want to show you my friend Frank Moore Jr., I lived in Gainesville, Georgia as an intern, and then I also spent uh, three more years there pastoring at a community, at a church, and there was a ministry there started about 50 years ago by Gene Beckham, Beckstein. His name was Mr. B. Great man, if you could show those pictures. Mr. B was an amazing, amazing man. This is him. He's now since gone with the Lord, but he and his wife stopped 
uh, pastoring about 20 years into their pastorate, and they opened up a, a rescue mission in the city of Gainesville, Georgia. It, it, it not only housed men, but it also fed people every day. And so much of my time spent in Gainesville, I would take teenagers into this, good news at noon, because they had lunch every day at noon. And he adopted an African-American boy when he was only about four years old that was in a horrible abuse situation. His name was Frank Moore. I want to show you my friend Frank Moore. Frank Moore, I loved him so much. It was awesome going and hanging out at Good News at Noon. Uh, he, he is the guy who would spend most of his days in the public library because uh, he couldn't drive, and he would walk from Good News at Noon to the public library in Gainesville. I saw him there on so many different occasions. This is him when we served together back in my really, really young days. And I, this week, was preparing this message, and the Lord pricked my heart and said, you remember Frank. And I tell you, one of the awesome things about Frank was, I, the best part of going to Good News at Noon was not just the serving, but it was, it was fantastic because Frank was a strong believer, and you never knew when Frank would literally walk out of the kitchen while cooking and break out into a hymn of praise to God. It would happen at any time. The two that he really ever sang were Beulah Land and I'll Fly Away. I texted a girl named Katie House this week, and I asked her again, I said, I said, Katie, do you remember that? And I was trying to pull another video, and I found, thankfully, I went on YouTube and found a video. There's no way I could go back to my old flip phone and try to find that stuff. Um, but this is Frank, and, and he, would, he would always bust out in song, and he would always sing a hymn that would get everybody involved. He would walk into the library, and he'd say, amen, amen, and the whole place would bust out in song. I'm going to show you just a quick video of Mr. Frank Moore Jr. Do we have that? So this is a long video. I wanted you just to see a snippet here at Frank at the bottom. I, uh, you see Frank there standing off to the left. I researched him this week, and this past July, he was leading service on a Wednesday night at Good News and Noon, where he'd been for 35 years. And he walked out of the back door, and he had a heart attack and went and met Jesus. And I look forward to the day when I'll sing with Frank Moore Jr. again around the throne of God. But you know what I love so much about this man, Frank Jr.? Sometimes he would break out in, How Great Thou Art. What I love about him is that it reminds us that when my heart and your heart is surrendered to God, praise can burst out in the most amazing places. When you really have a heart surrendered to God, it can bust out in a restaurant, it can bust out in a public library, it can bust out in a waiting room at the hospital, it can bust out at a gas station pump, it could bust out anywhere possible. It can bust out in the worst possible jail cell. When anyone surrenders to Jesus, no one or nothing really can hinder their praise. The text that we read today, Paul wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go to Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't. And he gave him a vision of a man of Macedonia. So he goes to Europe instead of Asia. And he plants a church there. The first church on the continent of Europe, he plants. And it turns out that the man of Macedonia was not a man. It was a woman. It's a great text, by the way, for today's modern day era. The text was not a man. The dream was not a man. It was a woman. Her name was Lydia. Lydia became the first church planter there in Europe. Start with me in Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit which she predicted the future, Paul said. Luke writes, and she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And she followed Paul, notice this, 
and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. The Spirit left her. Now let me say, can I just say real quick, the practice of wicked men making money off of vulnerable women is not a new thing. We probably counsel it weekly. Wicked men taking advantage of vulnerable women is not a new thing. Been around since the beginning. And here, notice the scripture doesn't say that the fortune telling is a carnival act. It's a legitimate ability. She had a spirit of python. Now that doesn't mean much to us. The spirit of python meant everything for Luke's readers. Why? Because everybody in the ancient world knew that the place that you went to receive fortune telling was the temple of Apollo. The temple of Apollo had priests there and there was the oracle of Delphi. The oracle of Delphi was called Pythia and there was a big statue outside the temple called the python statue. I believe, personally, she had a spirit. I believe, and I see it in Scripture, that Satan traffics in this evil. That's why we tell you don't do tarot cards. That's why you stay away from astrology. And it's not just fun, fun, and funny to do it in innocent. You stay away from it because Satan traffics in it. He does. He traffics in the occult. And so this is not a carnival act. She really has the ability to do this. She has the power to do this. Now, here she's saying truth about these men of God. But listen, truth is discredited if it comes from the wrong source. So even though it's truth, it's now being discredited and Paul turns around and knows that Satan is not helping him in the mission of God. He's trying to diminish the way of Jesus. So Paul's bringing a message of freedom and he don't want a message in freedom uh, endorsed by a slave. A message of freedom doesn't come from the lips of a slave to to Satan. It just doesn't work. And the demon said, "Uh uh-oh, because they know who boss, they know who the boss is. And the demons come up out of this lady. Now her owners have a problem. They're not excited she gets set free. They're not happy for her deliverance. They aren't happy at all. Now, it sounds self-serving for them to say they delivered her from a spirit, these men, Paul, and, and, and these Paul, Paul and his companions. So what they do is they do what we do when we don't want to tell the truth what we're really upset about. They wrap up their anger in nationalism. Now, I'm at home, so let me meddle just a minute, okay? They wrap up their anger and nationalism. And here's what they do, verse 19. They put on the Roman flag and they start a race riot. And the Bible says in verse 19, when our owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them in the marketplace to get authorities, to, to speak to authorities. Now, they are mad because they don't got no more money. That's not what they say. And after they've been severely flogged, look at this, they were thrown into prison. Uh, go back. You skipped a, 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 ch- a chunk of, there we go. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. Notice this. By advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. Notice that. They're trying to plead patriotism, which has nothing to do with what they're mad about. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Time out. There's no higher indignity as a Jewish man to be forced to be naked publicly. And these two men are stripped naked publicly. Verse 23, and after they'd been severely flogged, open wounds, they were thrown into a prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders... He put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks. They were beaten until they had open raw wounds. They're put in the inner cell of the jail in stocks. These stocks were not to secure them. I've told you this before, but the stocks were used for torture. The Romans spread your legs as far apart as they could. Then they would put stocks so that as the longer you stayed there, your muscles would go into cramps and they would rip rip from from your joints. It was torture. It would go into major cramps and they would be stuck there, tortured. 
all night long. Now remember, the only reason Paul and Silas are in this town in the first place is because God wouldn't let them go to Asia. God wouldn't let them go to a different place to where they wanted to go. They're trying to go to Asia, but they obey God. They do exactly what God says. They deliver a woman who is bound up with Satan, and this is what they get? This is what an unhindered life for Jesus looks like? This is the open door for the gospel? As, as, as a matter of fact, that is exactly the open door for the gospel and exactly what a life following Jesus looks like. Because look at the next verse says, verse 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God. They were worshiping. And the other prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners were eavesdropping on them. Instead of cursing men, they are praising God. Now I get the praying part. You get that? I get the praying part. If I was Paul and Silas, I'm praying too. Oh God, get me out of here. Oh, dear God, break these chains. I'd be praying, but praising? Praying, but praising and worshiping? See, worship doesn't need the right place. Worship needs the right perspective. Worship doesn't need a right context. Worship needs a right heart. Worship needs a right understanding. Can I give you the big takeaway this weekend? We have response ability. In any circumstance we ever face in life, we have the capacity to determine our response. We have the freedom to choose how we will handle the things in life. We have the freedom to handle and choose how we would handle the things in life that we would not choose. I was reading a story in an email this last week about Jerry. Jerry had an incredible attitude. He was an awesome man. They would often ask Jerry, why do you have a good attitude? And he said, because I choose it. He said, because I choose it. See, you can choose to be in a good mood or you can choose to be in a bad mood. One day, Jerry, it was put to the test. Jerry owned a restaurant. Some guys broke in, thieves broke in, and they shot him, robbed him. He was laying in a pool of his own blood. The paramedics come in, the ER, they take him to the ER. He gets to the ER, and Jerry could tell that the doctors are looking at him like he's not gonna live. So he said, I gotta change their attitude. The nurses shouted at him and said, are you allergic to anything, Jerry? He said, yes. And they all paused and listened. He said, bullets. <laughs> the whole room busted out in laughter, and he said, now you listen to me, doctors. You're looking at me like I'm a man who's not gonna make it. And I've decided, I've pre-decided I'm living, so you better operate on me like a man who's going to live, not a man who's going to die. That's Paul. You do whatever you want to do on the outside of me, but you cannot dictate what's going on on the inside of me. You can put me in chains. You can change my circumstance. You can surround me and gloat over me as an enemy. You can decide the outside, but you don't choose what's going on the inside. You can lock me up, but you can't stop me from looking up. You cannot imprison true worship. You cannot hinder true praise. And some of you, you better listen to me. You better, you better get with me this morning. Some of you in a hard season of life, and what I'm about to say, the Spirit of the Lord can set you free. He can really set you free in the air of worship, in the air of praising. God. So I want to talk to you for a few moments about what true worship is. Number one, true worship is a pre-decision. It's a pre-decision. It is a pre-decision. Unhindered praise is a pre-decision I make. Realize Paul and Silas were praising God without ever knowing if they would leave that prison. We know they left the prison. They are praising God without knowing if they'll ever get out of that prison or not. 
This isn't if only praise. God, I praise if only you will. God, I praise if only you'll do this. No, this was even if praise. Even if we die in this rat hole, God, we're going to praise you. Some of you, you got to move from if only praise to even if praise. Even if I never see the land of the living in this situation, in this life, I'm going to praise you, God. Even if it never turns out the way I want it to turn out, I'm going to praise you, God. Why? Because ultimately the Christian life is founded on one thing. What do you believe about God? Who is God and what is he like? Is he good or is he not good? Is he faithful or is he not faithful? And Paul and Silas had pre-decided. They had made a determination. Their praise isn't based on anything other than what they have already pre-decided about God and what they believe about the character of God. They've already pre-decided what God's character is unto them long before any circumstances come in their life. And that he is good, that in Jesus Christ he's redeeming the world to himself, and he is faithful. Paul would write this church, this church that he got locked up in, the city, Philippians 4.4. Here's what he'd say a few years later. He'd say, rejoice in the Lord always. You think that had some power when they read that to the church, when they knew just a few years before he had been in the bottom of a jail cell and he rejoiced? He said, rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Listen to me, look at that scripture. You cannot rejoice always if you are rejoicing in your circumstances because your circumstances will not always be rejoice-worthy. You cannot rejoice always if you're rejoicing in what you are experiencing. You cannot rejoice always if you are dependent upon what you are going through. How do you rejoice always? You rejoice in the Lord because if God never changes, then he is worthy of praise all the time. There is not a time when it is not right to acknowledge who he is, whether it's a good day or it's a bad day, whether the test results are positive or the test results are negative, whether the court case goes against you or the court case goes for you. God. God is to be worshiped. Listen to me. I believe God is more honored by a surrendered heart so much more than he is by inconsistent feelings. And when you have an inconsistent, awesome day of worship, that is not honoring God as much as a heart that's fully surrendered, even in the midst of suffering, still praising God. It's not. In fact, the purest form of praise is when you don't feel like it. But in obedience, you tell God, I believe you are who you say you are. That's worship. This is how Jesus worshiped. This is how he worshiped. You know what he did? He would not allow his hardest trial to hinder his praise. Remember the night, remember the, night uh, the, dark, uh, the darkest night of his life? Remember he's about to go down and get betrayed? What does the Bible say in Matthew 26, 30? What does it say? After singing a what? Him, they went out to the Mount of Olives right before the darkest moment of his life. Jesus walked into the hardest trial anyone on the earth has ever faced with a song of praise on his lips, with a song of worship to his Father. By acknowledging, listen to me, who is above us, it will help us reframe what's going on around us. You will not get a reframing of what's happening around you until you get your eyes off of what's around you and to who is above you. I worship. You say, Craig, that's a contradiction. It is. Let me give you another contradiction. Go to Malachi chapter three. We're starting a series in two weeks called Minor Prophets, Major Mission. I'm probably not gonna preach from Malachi, but I've been studying these minor prophets a lot. I want you to listen to the contradictions. I find five of them in five verses, but I'm just gonna talk about two of them. He says, see, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
The message of the covenant in whom you delight indeed is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? Because it's judgment. And who can stand when he appears? For he, God, is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. God's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi, refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Notice that text. A beautiful contradiction. Did you catch that? Look at the verse one again. Look at it. Verse one. If we read scripture carefully, we'll see that scripture talks like contradictions all the time. They seem to be at odds with each other. You say, look, all kinds of contradictions. First of all, he's talking about the coming of the Lord. I'm sending a messenger, but he's talking about the coming of the Lord, but a Lord who's already present. Now, how can you believe in a God who's already present and yet still coming? Seems like a contradiction. But see, all scripture does this. And, and, and our speech is sometimes unfaithful. Here's what we do. We say, many times we talk if we're living in an absence of the Lord. Like he was here once, Jesus was here once, and he's not here and he'll be back again. And we sometimes imply, we say the Lord is coming back. We say we're waiting on the Lord's return. But if we're not careful, that's misleading because the Lord is not absent. Jesus is not absent. Well, what do you mean, Craig? What did he tell his disciples before he sins? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say, I'll go away for a while, and then I'll come back to you. No, no. He said, I'm with you always. So he disappears. Right after he says that, we're supposed to laugh. Luke wants us to laugh. I'm with you always. Gone. But listen to me, church. you got to listen. you got to hear. He doesn't ascend to uh, a sin to go away from them, he ascends to come nearer to them. And we have a hard time believing it, but it's what Scripture says. John's Gospel says, Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away. If I go away, I will send the Comforter to you. Oh, there it is, Craig. It contradicted yourself. See, he's away, and the Comforter comes, but that's not where he stops. Where did Jesus say after that? If the Comforter comes, then the Father and I will come and make our home with them. Who's, who's our home? Jesus is our home. So how do, you, how do you become a Lord who's coming but yet already present? Listen to me. We're not living in the absence of Jesus. He's not way off out there. He's nearer to us now than he was with his disciples. He's coming, yes, but he's not coming from a place of absence. He's coming from one form of presence to another form of presence. That's how Jesus is coming. Now, I'm going to stir your affections. I hope by the Spirit of the Lord, I, I hope I'm stirring you to get you ready to worship, all right? That he's not left you, and he is not off in the distance somewhere. No, 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 no. He is absolutely here. There is a God who is always present and yet always coming near. How do you say that all at once? He's never absent, and yet he's still coming in new ways. He is present, and yet he will be present in other ways. So I, what, did, what did Jesus say to Thomas? Thomas, you've seen me and believed, but blessed are those who do not see and have believed. Can I say to you, because it's early in the morning, I need to shake you up. Can I shake you up? It is better for us that Jesus is present to us this way than it was for Jesus to be present the way he was with his disciples. You don't believe it, do you? Because we don't believe Jesus' words. It is more blessed to have Jesus this way than to have Jesus' presence that way. And unless our speech indicates that, we won't worship like we need to worship. We'll worship like Jesus is out there and not here. 
not here, not present among us, not making his home with us. It is more blessed to have this presence of Jesus than what Peter and Thomas had 2,000 years ago. It's more blessed. You say, Craig, this, this really gets played out. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. If you look at, for instance, liturgical prayers that we have in traditional settings today, like the Book of Common Prayer. Did you know what the Book of Common Prayer existed from was 300 years? And you know what every time they would do in communion, the communion elders would come out, and here's what they would say. They would say, Lord, bless this bread and this wine to become for us the body and blood of our Lord. You know what they did in the 1980s? Because all churches were changing their language to try to get you know, up to par and relative. Here's what they changed it to. They said, Lord, we will bless this bread and this grape juice to remember you. Did you hear the new liturgy? It went from, Lord, you bless and you make to telling God, we know you aren't here, so we'll bless it and we'll remember you. Did you catch that? That's a change in theology. You're not here, you're not gonna do anything, so we'll bless it and we'll remember your sacrifice. That's not what it is. We're not remembering a once present Jesus who's now distant. We're not taking bread and drinking juice saying we are remembering a Jesus who not will one day come back. We're attuning ourselves to the presence of Jesus now in a way that's better than it was back then. Jesus is among us. And guess what? There's a coming presence that's even greater than the presence now. See, he's both present and yet he's coming. You see how hard it is to talk as a Christian? You see how difficult? So worship is a predecision, but number two, worship is a focus. It's a refocus. This means we can fix what we are fixated on. We can fix what we are fixated on. You know why we can change our perspective? Because perspective changes everything. Can I read to you a letter from a young lady, a co-ed at school? She's in her college, first year, freshman year of college. She said, dear mom and dad, I have so much to tell you because of the fire in my dorm set off by student riots. I experienced temporary lung damage last week and I had to go to the hospital. While I was there, I fell in love with a man and we've moved in together. I dropped out of school when I found out I was pregnant. He got fired because of his drinking, so we're moving to Alaska where we'll get married after the birth of our baby. P.S., none of this really happened, but I did flunk my chemistry class and I wanted to keep in perspective. (laughs) Worship is a refocus. It's a new perspective. Mickey Medvick, she is a great uh, college professor. She does studies on medals. I came across this several weeks ago. She does studies on Olympians and the medals they get. And here's what she found. She found out that bronze medalists in the Olympics are way happier with their results than the silver medalists are. It's proven. And here's why she says it's proven. It's because a silver medalist fixate on how close they were to winning the gold and bronze medalists fixate on how close they were to not making the stand at all. And she says, people say, my happiness is dependent on objective results. And she says, no, all happiness is dependent on your subjective focus. All of life is about your subjective focus. What are you going to choose to focus on? What are you going to refocus on? Paul and Silas, instead of focusing on all that was wrong around them, they decided to focus on all that was right about God. You focus on what is so wrong in your life, and you will go into a spiritual slump and depression. You focus on Tennessee football for the last 10 years, you will be depressed. Took me three hours last night to work through this. I'm way too emotionally involved. I mean, you won't be able to get out of it. I'm serious. I'm about to call Chad last night and say, you have to preach. I cannot get out of the stupor. 
So I'm going to make the choice to praise the Lord. And the Bible says they were singing. I don't believe, by the way, they were singing, no one knows my troubles but Jesus. My troubles, they are so bad. I think they were singing, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. Do you know what? I think I can maybe point to the song that Paul and Silas were singing. You know how I know that? Because a few years later, Paul writes the church at Philippi, and in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, he writes a Christian song that all the Philippians know. Could be the one he maybe sang that night. Can we read it? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, this is a song, ever even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him. You catch this? You know why they had strength now? Because Jesus became obedient. He understands where we're at, Silas. He understands to be in chains. He understands what it's like to be down here at midnight. And so they began to exalt God. So God exalted him to the highest place above the earth, that named above every, every other name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when they sang that, it lifted their spirits. Listen to me. Unhindered praise hinders the capacity of our struggles to discourage us. Unhindered worship hinders the capacity of our struggles to discourage us. So when we praise the Lord, we remember he's with us and he understands us and he cares for us. Can I give you another paradox? Back to Malachi 3. Here's an amazing one. We delight, verse 1, in the judgment of God even though the judgment's coming against us. What in the world is Malachi saying? He says, paradoxically, Oh, we're looking for the messenger who's already here but yet coming. And we're looking for him and we're delighting that he is going to fire us up and wash us clean. We're excited about the judgment of God. Notice in the text, go back to the text real quick. He, the Lord whom you seek, will come suddenly. The messenger and whom, Malachi 3, 1, 5. The messenger in whom you delight is coming, but who can endure it? Who can stand when this Lord comes? For he is like a refiner's fire. He's like a fuller's soap. Think about that. We delight in his judgment. We seek his judgment. And yet we know when it comes, it will overwhelm us. And it comes as judgment against us. Now, I love this passage. Leave it up just for a moment. Notice this passage, verse 1. It's not the Lord saying, I will come and breathe judgment on those people. When judgment comes, it doesn't become with those people. It begins with we people. When God's judgment comes, it becomes with me. It becomes with you and begins with me and begins with you. It, the judgment of God doesn't start out there and work its way into the house of God. The judgment of God starts in here and works its way out. Out there. That's why one of the greatest theologians of the last century, Von Balthasar, Von Balthasar said, if I can imagine anyone going to hell before myself, I do not understand the gospel. I don't understand Jesus' love for me. Because judgment doesn't start with you, judgment starts with me. Judgment doesn't start with the world or the earth, it starts with me. And he says the Lord's judgment's coming against who? Not against the church attenders, but the priests and Levites, the leadership. It's starting with the leadership in the most holy place, and we delight in it. Why? Because if we are Christians, we have to say all of that at once. God is a God of judgment. God does judge sin. God says, I'm coming against the sorcerer. Look at the next text. It says, I'm coming against the sorcerer and the adulterer and those who swear falsely and against those who oppress their workers and their wages, who neglect the widow and the orphan, who thrust aside the alien. Is that not striking? Notice the list. 
The first list of sin is sorcery and adultery. And so many churches in America say, yes, judge that sexual perversion. It's sinful and witchcraft, but God's list doesn't stop there. He's judging the one who oppresses workers and their wages. Well, that sounds kind of liberal, Craig. He's, he's judging the one who thrusts aside the alien. What? God will judge us for not welcoming the refugee? That sounds so liberal, Craig. Well, God's list of sins don't happen to align with our politics. See, we only like a part. We only read a part. This is what makes worship really powerful. When we are willing to say all of it at once. Oh, I wish you could hear my heart this morning. He's coming to judge all of our sin. Not their sin, all of our sin. My sin. The truth is, if I'm faithful, I want that. What do you mean, Craig? The mark of a faithful Christian is that it invites the judgment of God. I want you to judge my, my sin because my sin is a disease in me, God. Would you get it out of me? It's keeping me from your purpose. Lord, come and judge my sin. Judge my sin and take it from me. Rip it out of me. Cut it out of me, God. That's why he says we delight in him. Why? Because the only judge who can judge and divide between soul and spirit is that judge. It's only that judge that can separate cancer from healthy organs. It's only that judge that can separate the sin from the sinner. You listen to me, church. That's why we need him to judge. I can't perform this kind of surgery on myself, and I can't perform this kind of surgery on you. Listen to me. I can't separate what is you from the sin in you, but he can. I can't separate the cancer from your healthy organs, but he can. I can't separate your spirit from your soul, but he can. He can. And that's why we welcome his judgment. We welcome it. We welcome it. And when he comes, how does he come, church? Go back to the text. He comes as a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Make no mistake about it. It will hurt. Church, it will hurt. It will burn and it will drown. But it's a hurt that's aimed at healing. If you haven't heard anything I said today, would you just lean in? He is a refiner's fire, not an arsonist fire. Sometimes we think God's judgment is an arsonist fire. He's gonna burn the whole thing down because he's done with it. No, it's a very special fire. And it's a fire, what kind of fire? That has the aim of destroying everything in you that is destroying you. So you welcome that fire. You welcome the refiner's fire because the refiner's fire makes you the silver that you were intended to be. So you open up your arms and you say, refiner's fire, would you come and judge me? I welcome the heart of a true Christian is I welcome the judgment of God. Get out of me, Lord, the sin that doesn't belong in me. It's destroying me. It's keeping me from life. It's keeping me from what you want from my life. And it's a fuller soap. You know what that means? He wants to save that cloth. You are the cloth. Do you hear me? He won't throw it away, but he will get the filth out of you. No matter how many times he has to scrub you, no matter how many times he has to put you in the water, he will get the stain out of you. He will get the filth out of you. Not because he doesn't like the filth, but because he loves you. And when you let the refiner's fire come, then you'll realize once the fuller soap has come and there's no stains and you have been refined, you'll realize it wasn't about the stains. It wasn't about the filth in the first place because that's gone. It was always about the silver and it was always about the cloth. That's why we can say, come, Lord Jesus, send your messenger and judge me and take out of me the things that are unlike you. That's worship. That's worship. That's worship. Lord, I worship you. You're here, but you're coming. It's judgment, but I welcome it. And we say all of it at once. Listen to me. He loves you. That's why he's against your sin. 
Because he knows your sin's destroying what he loves. That's why he hates your sin. So worship is a pre-decision. Worship is a refocus. But number three, worship is a witness. Worship is a witness. What do you mean, Craig? Notice it said they were singing and the other prisoners were listening to them. Church, when we give our offerings to God, we are blessing those around us. Look at this. Look at this. Psalm 34, 1 and 2. Look at this, church. Look at this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my mouth. I praise the Lord. Look at this. Let the suffering listen to me and rejoice. You having a hard time right now, you get up next to me and sit next to my hip and you listen to me lift my voice to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why we tell you when you're first a Christian, the most important thing you can do is be in church every single weekend. You don't miss a weekend. You're here every single weekend because it's not about you and it's not about that God needs your worship. It's because you need worship and there are people that are suffering around you that need to hear your lips. They need to see your uplifted hands. When you're discouraged and distraught, you don't leave the house of God. You come to the house of God. Let the suffering listen and rejoice. Let the suffering, let those who are hurting listen and rejoice because they hear me rejoice. Worship is not just a pre-decision. Worship's not just a, a, a refocus. Worship is a witness. A witness. Are you in a tough season? Listen to somebody else. Praise the Lord. It will bless your soul. It will bless your soul. There's so much power in hearing somebody else praise the Lord. Worship. We worship because God is good. That's why we have the kindergarten through the fifth graders stay with us during worship. Do you know what I want my kids' greatest memories of life to be? Is when their mom and dad were suffering. And their mom and dad continue to come before the Lord each and every week and to lift up their voices and lift up their hands and they see that their parents are worshipers. You know what I want our DP kids to see? I want them to see a couple who've been married for 60 years and they don't have any really strength to make it to church, but they get up every Sunday morning. They get their walkers. They find a way to get to that parking lot. They walk in this room and they sit in chairs and these little kids look up and say, that's somebody who's still worshiping. That's somebody who is beat up and, and, and even in a season, in a twilight of life where you know what? They don't have the strength maybe they once had, but they still are worshiping God. Worshippers. And the people in the prison wondered, how can Paul and Silas's spirits be so free? It was a sacred concert and it brought the house down. Literally. It brought the house down. Look at the text with me and we'll close. 26, Acts 16, 26. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake. The, the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose and the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. He was gonna kill himself. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here, brother. And the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, sirs, what can I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved in you your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all his house, household or those in his house. Look at the next verse says. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Imagine, listen, church, you are Paul. Your body is racked with pain. You got open wounds where you are bleeding and and the guy responsible for beating you is about to put a sword through his chest. He beat you six hours ago, 
He comes running in. He's about to put a sword in his chest. I would probably, if I was Paul, say, well, go ahead with your bad self. Throw it right through your ribs. Put it right through your heart. But you know what Paul sees? He sees a man created in the image of God, no matter how much that image has been erased and effaced. And he says, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. And that man come in. He comes in and says, you are free, Paul, to escape. And Paul says, no, you are free to escape. You are free to escape your life of death. You are free to escape your chains of bondage. You are the one that's getting freedom here, not me. When you won't let anything hinder your praise, church, listen to me. You won't let anything hinder your pursuit of what God wants. And what God wants is people to be saved. So you won't let the pursuit of what God wants be hindered when you won't let your praise be hindered leads to the next it's worth it and Paul wouldn't let him kill himself but Paul let him die and he did that very night he died to his old self they buried him in the waters of baptism and he was raised a new man and a new life and I just wonder could that one man and his whole family be God's intended outcome all alone for Paul and Silas I just wonder Look, 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 I I can't help but wonder. He's trying to go to Asia. He's trying to go to Bithynia. Did God know the best way to melt the hard, crusty heart of a Roman soldier is to let him hear the praise of men that are more free than he is? Maybe that's why God let what happened in your marriage happen in your marriage because you've been praying for years for your husband's heart to be tender. And what if it takes what happened in your marriage to make your husband's heart? I think about this all the time. It's, it's, I can't help but think, is that what happened? What, what was happening? See, listen to me. Unhindered praise will result in a surrendered life. My grandmother, who was the only believer in our family before I met Jesus, she prayed faithfully for her family for years. She turned 83 years old several years ago. Her husband had just passed a few years before. My wife and I, we went down with our oldest kids to visit her at Memorial Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we went in that night, and my grandmother already had the death rattle in her throat. I was leaving the next morning at 7 a.m. to go to Asia, to go to the Philippines with a mission trip. I think with about 15, 16 students. And I went there that night, and I reached down, and I could smell that death breath. You know what I'm talking about. You've been around those close to death, and that death rattle in her speech. And I said, Mamma, I love you. You know I love you. you. You've been able to see the salvation of the Lord hit your household. Now, isn't that awesome? And I rejoiced with her, and she said, Honey, how can I pray for you? And I said, Mamma, you're not going to pray for me today. You're you're not going to do that. I'm actually going to lay here on this bed with you, reach over you, and I'm going to wrap my arms around you, and I'm going to pray for you. And I prayed for her. I gave it all I got, the gusto. I walked out of the room, and I remember turning around and looking. I thought, Mamma, that that could possibly be the last time I see her this side of eternity. I went to bed, got in a bus from Chattanooga to Atlanta. I get to Atlanta. My dad calls me. He says, I don't know how to tell you this, but the nitro valve of your grandmother has, has busted out. She's bleeding. She's losing all blood to her limbs. And I said, well, I've got some good leaders. So I'm going to send them to Asia without me. You send teenagers to Asia. Tell the parents that. We had great leaders. And I got on a groom's van and made my way back to Chattanooga. And my wife picks me up in Eastridge and I go to the hospital and I get there at 1 p.m. She's got one hour of life left. Didn't know that at the time. 
And my grandmother, who is a spirit-filled believer and who is a worshiper, who would never stop listening to worship songs, who would write worship lyrics, hymns on every sheet of paper she could give me, who had me a book every time I went around. She always made me green beans, always made me pinto beans mixed with homemade biscuits. And, and she would sit and preach the gospel to me. I walked into that room and she would lift up that back, that lower back, as she was dying. And she had no blood in her limbs. And she would lift up both arms. And she would pray in the spirit. And she'd say, Jesus, I worship you. Help me over. Jesus, I worship you. Help me over. And then she would fall back to the bed. And she would say, Jesus, I worship you. Help me over. And she would fall back to the bed. And then she would pray in the spirit. And I took that right hand. And my dad took that left hand. And at 2.07 p.m., I watched in the midst of a worshipful moment, Jesus take the hand of my grandmother and transfer her into a new dimension where her faith gave way to sight. She saw the one in whom her heart knew well. And there was crying, but there was no sadness. There was joy unspeakable, full of glory. There was a depth of worship that I hadn't experienced like that in a long time. And even family members that are in the room that are not even believers or far from God, we begin to sing hymns unto God. We begin to sing, How great thou art. How great they are. Lord, my soul sings unto thee. That is what worship is. Worship is not dependent on anything you ever you ever receive or consequence or circumstance in your life. Worship is about pre-deciding that you are good, God, and I will worship you. And I will refocus, and I will put my subjective focus on you, God. And you know what I'll do? I'll make it as a witness to the people around me that, Lord, nothing will hinder my praise. Some of you are in a tough spot today because you have been obedient. Not because you've been disobedient. That's a different sermon. You're in a tough spot because you've been obedient and you've obeyed God's call and it hurts right now but you have response ability you can choose to offer God praise even in that place that you didn't choose and here's what I've learned you ready praise or prison I should say cannot hinder praise but praise can hinder bondage prison cannot hinder praise but praise can sure hinder bondage in your life There's no place that can stop you from praising the Lord because praising Him, He can set you free. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, what does He say? Oh, read it with me. Stand with me all across this room. Don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life. Be filled with the Spirit. Look at this church singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among who? He did not say go home and sing it in your prayer closet, did He? Where is worship to take place? Among yourselves. Where does music take place? It takes place in your hearts, but where do you sing the songs? Among yourselves. Where do you make music in your heart? In your heart. But where do you sing the songs? Among yourselves. Whether or not you have a joy, a good voice or not, he wants a joyous voice. He wants a praiseworthy voice, a voice that's glad, a joyful noise. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.